Yeah, let me just uh, pray just for this message um, that I feel the Lord wants to share. Lord, I, I, uh, I ask, Father God, for your power, for your anointing, both for me but also for us as a church, Lord. We know that you speak through people, Lord, and help us to hear your voice instead of the voice of a person or a man. Even you've uh, this morning just already been speaking through Dave and through others, Lord, but it's, it's ultimately it's your voice that we want to hear, God. We don't come to hear clever ideas or words or we don't come for anything fancy. We come, to, we come to hear your word. Your word is a lamp unto our feet, God. Your word brings life and freedom. Um, yeah, Lord Jesus, you said the truth will set you free. Your truth, God, not our truths. But we pray, would you speak with such clarity and such power this morning? If there's anything clouding over our vision of you, would you remove every veil? Speak to our hearts, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Just um, in the worship, uh, with that word about uh, fathers, um, I felt like picking up on that. Very often, um, for good and for bad, God does use it for good, but sometimes for bad. Um, Our relationship with our fathers does affect the way we see God and relate to God. And if you are a father, like I am, it's a very sobering thing <laughs> to know that my daughter will be influenced by me in the way she thinks of God. And I know I'm going to fail her. I know, because I'm a fallible, mortal human being. But um, God is bigger than the failures of our fathers, and He's bigger than my failures as a father. So my trust in, is in God, that through my failings, Yet he will still be a father to my daughter. And he'll be, a fa- he'll be the kind of father to her that I can never be to her. And I'm a good dad that's really, really trying my very best to be a good dad to her. That's, that's, that's more than many dads do. Uh, but, but even still, I know I'm going to fail her. But God's bigger than me. And, he's, and for you, he's, God's bigger than your dad. Uh, and he can work despite the failings of your father. Amen? One of the, um, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm going to just share a little bit from Proverbs this morning. And Proverbs is a book uh, that is in the genre called wisdom literature. I think there's three or four books in the Bible that fall into the genre of wisdom literature. Essentially, the whole point of the book is to help us to be wise, to grow in wisdom. A very practical book. I encourage you to read it and meditate on it. If you haven't in a while, um, just recently in chatting as, as leaders, we realized that as you read through the book of Proverbs, it's supposed to be the wisdom of God, but the Proverbs, the sayings of wisdom, seem so strange. If you don't believe me, I'll put up a couple now. And you can tell me if that is conventional wisdom of our culture or if that feels so left field. Is that even in the Bible? And it is. And not only is it in the Bible, it's in the wisdom literature of the Bible. This is what it looks like to walk in the wisdom of God. And then I'll get to what I feel is a foundational text from the book of Proverbs. But I just want to mess with your head a little bit. Is that fine? We'll do that. So maybe we can put up uh, Proverbs chapter 22, verse 15. We're starting with the most left field, and we'll work our way further right. Here's, what, here's one you don't hear every day. Folly is bound up in the heart of a child, 
but the rod of discipline will drive it far from him. Okay? Interesting. Let's go, go to the next one. I'm just, I'm just messing with you. Proverbs chapter 17 to 27 and 28. A man of knowledge uses words with restraint. A man of understanding is even-tempered. Even a fool is thought wise if he keeps silent and discerning if he holds his tongue. Okay, just keep that up there. Think social media right now. How old school does that sound, right? It's, it sounds like from a different world, different planet. So contrary to the wisdom or the conventions of our world. Let's, let's try um, Proverbs 15 verse 1. A gentle answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. Beautiful, hey? And old, really old. <laughs> uh, we'll, do, we'll, we'll do one more. This is, this is a funny one. Proverbs chapter 20, verse 13. <laughs> do you know? <laughs> I dare you to post this on Facebook later. I dare you. <laughs> do not love sleep. Or you will grow poor. <laughs> Stay awake. And you will have food to spare. I dare you to put that on Facebook later. <laughs> Can you see, this is the wisdom of God. Hey? But how unconventional are these uh, sayings of Scripture? Now I want to get to the, I think, cornerstone text of the book of Proverbs, which is right in the beginning of Proverbs, which lays the foundation for all the wisdom in the book. And that's what we're going to spend some time on this morning. Proverbs chapter 1, verse 7, and there's a cross-reference which we'll go to as well. Um, you can put it up. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. That's why it's in chapter 1, verse 7, the beginning of the book, right? Fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and discipline. Let's do the cross-reference, the one you might be more familiar with, uh, in Proverbs 9, verse 10. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and knowledge of the Holy One, listen to that, is understanding. In other words, to know God is to know wisdom. That's why Jesus is often referred to as the wisdom of God. He is the wisdom of God. To know Christ is to know the wisdom of God. It's found relationally through growing in the knowledge of Christ. But what about the first verse? The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. I want to spend a little bit of time unpacking this because um, in our culture, both in the world and in the church, it's actually a very commonly, almost don't need to state it, kind of uh, wisdom that to fear God is a bad thing. To fear God is a bad thing. But I'm going to unpack a little bit of, of, first of all, why is the fear of the Lord the beginning of, of wisdom? And secondly, what is the fear of the Lord? Speci what is it? What does it actually mean to walk in the fear of the Lord? Because it is so countercultural to believe that fear is a good thing, especially fearing God. We actually have to unpack it and find out well, what specifically does that actually mean. But 
in the Bible, although we may think of the fear of the Lord as a bad thing, the Bible actually talks about it as a very, very positive, good thing. I'll give you an example. In uh, Deuteronomy, just as they're about to go into the promised land, these are the commands, decrees, and the laws uh, the Lord your God directed me to teach you to observe in the land that you are crossing the Jordan to possess, so that you, your children, and their children after them may fear the Lord your God as long as you live by keeping all his decrees and commandments that I give you. Why? And so that you may enjoy long life. Isn't that amazing? The fear of the Lord enables you to enjoy a long life. It's a good thing. It's for our good. Now that, I know, is messing with our minds a little bit. So, but think about this. I have a daughter. There's a couple of things. She's four. There's a couple of things she's really afraid of, and I'm glad. She's afraid of um, fast-moving trucks. So if we're crossing the road and she sees one coming, she grabs onto my leg like, like she's never going to let go. And she's afraid of fast-moving trucks. And you know what? I'm happy. I'm happy she's afraid of fast-moving trucks. She's also afraid of the ocean. When we go near the water in the ocean, she's scared of the waves. And I'm glad because she can't swim. So if she had to go diving into the ocean every two minutes, she'd die. And so there is a good kind of fear and there's a bad kind of fear. I'll explain a little bit later what the bad kind of fear looks like. We sometimes refer to it as a phobia. So, for example, if you have a phobia of geckos, like my wife, that is not a good fear because it's an irrational fear. There's nothing, there's nothing to fear from geckos, right? And then, and then you get a, an irrational fear of something which is dangerous, but not that dangerous, right? So maybe... Maybe I'll just to be a bit vulnerable. I'm terrified of snakes. Terrified. Absolutely terrified. And it's partly rooted in, in, in truth. They, they are dangerous. But if you had to see me when I see a snake, you'd think, okay, but, that, but not that dangerous, right? <laughs> and so there's a healthy fear and an unhealthy fear, and that is exactly true of God. It is a healthy thing to be to have a fear of God. But there is an irrational, unhealthy fear of God that we can talk about as well, which the Bible would talk about using the language of condemnation, fear of condemnation. For example, there's now no longer any condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So there's an irrational, unhealthy, debilitating kind of fear as well. One of Satan's strategies, and it's a very successful strategy thus far, which I want to reveal and unveil to us as a congregation, is the lie that we as Christians should not fear God. It's a lie. And let me explain to you using an earthly analogy. The disease, uh, leprosy. Leprosy is a disease of the skin which desensitizes your skin to pain. Did you know that? It attacks your nerve cells so that you no longer fear, well, fear or feel pain. And, and that is actually what kills people because they'll get a cut or they'll seriously damage, damage themselves and they won't actually know about it and, the, and it'll get infected and they might end up losing a whole limb because it wasn't treated. 
And so the one thing that they want in life is to recover their sense of pain. Because pain, is, it can be a good thing. And if we lose our sense of fear, which the Bible says is actually necessary for wisdom and for health and for life, it can actually kill you. And I'll explain a little bit as we go how. But I want to just start by saying we have to recognize the lie of Satan that fear of God is a bad thing. A healthy fear of God will save, will save your life. And not only that, it's the beginning of wisdom. It's the starting blocks. And so maybe let's just unpack this a little bit. If you, uh, if you want to answer the question, what kind of fear is the Bible talking about? What does it actually mean to fear God? Two things will come up in the definition. And I didn't make this up. If you go to a Bible dictionary and you just search for fear, as it's used in the New Testament, it'll give you these two definitions with a bunch of scriptures where those definitions are used like that. The first one is uh, to respect to reverence, and to be in awe of God. In other words, he's the almighty creator God, the Lord of the entire universe. He's the king of the world, and I am in awe of him. I reverence him, I worship him, and I respect him. The second definition is, so, so the second definition of the fear of the Lord is to fear the Lord. It means to be afraid of something dangerous in the same way that my daughter is afraid of big, fast-moving trucks or to be afraid of putting your hand on a plate that's on. The fear that you have of holding your hand on a plate that is on is the same kind of fear that the Bible is talking about with reference to God. And so um, Satan has tried to redefine the definition of the fear of the Lord, which is actually uh, not the full definition. It's a limited, uh, sanitized version of God, which feels safe, but it's not 100% true. Um, So I'm going to put up a quotation now. It's the only time I'll ever put up a quotation from this particular author, but it's for a reason. So you can put it up from Joseph Prince. He's now referring to the definition of the fear of the Lord. And I'm going to explain why I'm using this quotation, because it's not just him that thinks this way. I do believe in a reverential honor of the Lord. That's the first one, right? Remember I said this too? But I am not for any kind of teaching that promotes this idea that God wants you to be afraid of him. God delights in having us close to him. He welcomes us to dwell in his secret place, to be so close to him that we come under his shadow. These are all pictures of intimacy. Listen to this last line. This is critical. In any relationship, fear and intimacy cannot coexist. So he doesn't believe you can love God and fear God at the same time. But that's taking one definition of the fear of the Lord and rejecting the other one because it doesn't fit into your theology. And that is actually wrong. Not only is wrong as false, and it's deadly, because it's not the whole truth about God. A healthy fear of the Lord is is life-saving. It will preserve your life in the same way that a healthy fear of fire would preserve your life, for example. Let's, um, I missed something here. One one of the things that's happened um, 
in the church, but it's not just in the church, it's in the general culture, is that there's been a swing from one extreme to another extreme when it re- with relation to how, how we relate to God. So back in the olden days, there used to be a very reverential uh, fear of God Almighty, uh, which was good, but it was bad in the sense that this God Almighty that we revere is very far away, he's very distant, and he doesn't really care about your day-to-day goings-on. So it's one aspect of God at the rejection of another aspect of God. It got the reverential part right, but he's a distant God. He's not the kind of God who comes close, that actually cares, that knows the number of hairs on my head. The Bible says, you know, even a sparrow falls to the ground, he knows about how much more does he care about you. This God is so far up above, sitting on his throne, that I fear him, but I wouldn't cry on his shoulder if I'm going through a rough time. Amen? Does that that make sense? And then there's the other extreme, which is now where we're swinging to as a church, which is a deception, which is we move from a holy God to daddy God. But it's one and not the other. Daddy God is, um, he's loving, he's caring, he's sentimental, he's close, but we become over-familiar. We don't actually have a godly, healthy fear of this God because he's one and not the other. That is an opposite extreme, which is as unhealthy as, as, the, as the aloof God up in heaven who I fear, but I wouldn't cry on his shoulder. Do you understand what The Bible teaches both. Actually, we love God and we fear him. It is both. They do coexist. Um, and so this, but it's not actually funny enough, as I thought about it, it's not only as we relate to God, it's actually happened in the whole of culture. I'll explain what I mean. Even in parenting, there's been a swing that's reflected the same shift we've had towards God, where parents don't discipline their children the way they God asked them to. And par- children re- re- relate to their parents as basically my friend who's older. And yes, your parents can be your friend, but if that's all they are to you, you've got a problem, a serious problem, because they are there to lead you. They're an authority in, in your life that God has put in your life that you respect and you honor and you obey, and they're your friend. It can't just be one and not the other. But it's not just, so that knock-on effect of, of bad parenting actually causes us to be dysfunctional in the way we think about all authority. If you want to just go and have a look on the news recently, even in the past week, how people treat the police, for example. I saw some very shocking things this week. Absolutely no fear of the police. An absolute disregard for their authority. Where does that come from? It's this shift, it's this shift that I'm talking about. The way that people relate to the government. The Bible teaches us to honor the government. And the Bible says we should fear the government, that God's given them an authority in our lives, that we need to respect them, even the authority to take life, says it in Romans. That, 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 there's a healthy fear that we're supposed to have of the government. That doesn't mean to say they're always doing a good job, but we still have to respect them because God put them in place. Even in the church, you'll notice the swing. Back in the olden days, there was this unhealthy 
man of God, well, I say olden days, it's still, it's still around in certain cultures. This man of God, you know, don't touch the man of God because the Lord will strike you dead. He's God's holy man, right? It's this unhealthy, distorted man of God uh, attitude which needed to be reformed. But then you can swing to the opposite extreme where there's so little respect for spiritual authority that in itself becomes dangerous. And then when pastors play into that, how does that look? It looks, well, they've got no real authority, so they become motivational speakers that only tell people in their congregation what they know they want to hear. Because if they say something offensive, people will leave. So they become basically politicians. And that is not what God has called spiritual leaders to do. That is not what shepherds are supposed to do. They're also supposed to, they're supposed to feed the flock, encourage the flock, heal the flock, and warn them when they're going near to danger. And so it's, it's all a swing from one extreme to another, and it's not the fear of the Lord, and it, it can destroy people's lives. And so I believe, and I believe this very sincerely, that even this week, as the Lord laid this word on my heart, God is wanting to reform His, his bride. He is wanting to restore a healthy fear of the Lord. Not an unhealthy phobia of the Lord, but a healthy, reverential fear of the Lord. Amen? Does that resonate with you? Okay, so what does this fear look like? Let's unpack it a bit. I'm going to just talk about unbelievers and then Christians and what this looks like because it is different. The way you fear the Lord when you're an unbeliever is very different to how you fear the Lord when you're a Christian. There are some similarities, but it's worlds apart. When you're an unbeliever, the fear that you have of God is that He will pour out His wrath on you in full measure. And uh, let's, there, there are many passages of, the script, of Scripture which talk about the wrath of God being poured out on unbelievers. And obviously He's being patient now and giving people an opportunity to be reconciled with God. But there will be a day that if they don't make good on the opportunity that they've had, they will experience the full wrath of God. So let's have a look in Revelation chapter 6, verse 14. This is now talking about the second coming of Christ, when Jesus comes back again. We came once, and now he's coming. He will come back, and the Bible says he'll come back soon. And it says the sky receded like a scroll, rolling up, and every mountain and island was removed from its place. Then the kings of the earth, the princes, the generals, the rich, the mighty, every slave and free man hid in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains with terror. They're an abject terror. They called to the mountains. And as it says calls, it sounds like they're screaming to the mountains and the rocks. Fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. And that's because the window period for redemption has been finished. And now Jesus is coming back to judge. And Jesus is coming back to judge the unbelievers and the sinners. And so we need to be mindful of this. I mean, obviously, this is very applicable to you if you are an unbeliever. But for us as Christians, we need to be mindful of this even when we are relating and sharing the gospel with unbelievers. Because the gospel means good news. What is the good news? The good news is that Jesus bore the wrath of God on himself so that you don't have to. That is why it is good news. He bore it in your place. 
By believing in Him, the wrath of God passes over you. The judgment that was coming to you is diverted to Christ. That is why it is good news. But if you say that God is not going to pour out His wrath on unbelievers, then the gospel doesn't make sense. Because then why did Jesus bear our punishment on the cross? If it wasn't necessary for God to pour out His wrath, then the the cross actually doesn't make sense anymore. Does that make sense? And so even... I've noticed in social media and in popular culture, sometimes the way that people share the gospel is distorted. It's all about Jesus loves you and Jesus loves you and Jesus loves you, and he does. That's why he went to the cross. But his love took the shape of bearing your wrath in your place. And if you don't trust in Christ, the Bible says if you read the rest of John 3.16, if you go and read the next two verses, That if you don't put your trust in Christ, the wrath of God remains on you. It's either you're going to bear it or Christ is going to bear it. And it's your choice who's going to bear the wrath of God. But it's something that should inspire terror in the hearts of an unbeliever. And so we are motivated by the love of Christ. Thanks. But also there's a godly fear, a healthy fear that can lead us to repentance. So that's unbelievers. But what about Christians? What does the fear of the Lord look like for Christians? The first thing I think we would say is that um, we fear the discipline of God when we don't follow His ways. We fear the discipline of God. But what's interesting about the discipline of God is it's redemptive. It's not for the purpose of punishment. It's for the purpose of shaping us in righteousness. It's how he teaches us. It's how we learn. It's how we grow. But it is incredibly painful. It's painful. And if I can help it, I'd rather learn my lessons quicker so that I can have less discipline, so we can get it behind us. I can be changed into the image of Christ. I'm not a sucker for punishment. And probably you're not either, if I know you. So let's read Hebrews chapter 10, where it talks about this. Chapter 10 Verse 26. And what's interesting is that it refers back to parenting here. I want you to notice that. With this dysfunctional parenting, we don't understand the discipline of God. Uh, No, that's the wrong one. Um, Sorry, Hebrews chapter 12, verse 5 and 10. I gave you the wrong one. And and, and, And you have forgotten... That's interesting. And have you forgotten that the word of encouragement that addresses you as sons... My son, do not make light of the Lord's discipline and do not lose heart when he rebukes you because the Lord disciplines those he loves and he punishes everyone he accepts as a son. Endure hardship as discipline. God is treating you as sons. For what son is not disciplined by his father? That's a rhetorical question, by the way, but in our culture it's not actually rhetorical. If you are not disciplined and everyone undergoes discipline, not anymore, but it's supposed to be that way, then you are illegitimate children and not true sons. Moreover, we have all had human fathers who disciplined us and we respected them for it. How much more should we submit to the Father of our spirits and live? Our fathers disciplined us for a little while, as they thought best, but God disciplines us for our good, that we may share in His holiness. Just keep that up there. What's interesting is we respected our parents because they disciplined us. But if your parents don't discipline you, you don't respect them. And then when God wants to discipline you, you don't understand how a loving God can discipline me because your parents didn't. 
Don't have any frame of reference. But as I was started out by saying, God's bigger than my dad. He's bigger than your dad. He's bigger than our parents. He, 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 he's gracious and he's good. And he, he works redemptively in a broken world. There's one thing that's profoundly true. I, I heard this said, and it's stayed with me ever since, that those who have truly encountered God don't walk with a swagger, they walk with a limp. That's referencing Jacob, who, who wrestled with God, and for the rest of his life he walked with a limp. Those who have truly encountered God will be changed. There will be a weakness that you have, a brokenness, the good kind, not the bad kind. And I can testify to the fact that that is 100% true. <laughs> I have a spiritual limp. I've wrestled with the Lord, and I tell you what, my swagger went so fast. And it was specific. I mean, it's true, so we can be honest here, right? For me, I, I had a natural arrogance and pride. Like, at the age of 12, I thought I was the smartest person I've ever met. I kid you not. I actually said it out loud to the mirror the one morning when I was looking in the mirror. And the Lord disciplined me, and it was incredibly painful and incredibly long. And to this day, When, not if, when I discern an arrogance in me, I get scared. I tremble. I'm like, that was arrogance. That's not good. That's not good. Lord, I'm so sorry. Please. Because I've got a limp. Like, I've wrestled with the Lord. And that was very, very painful. And I do not want to go down that road again. I'm not scared that the Lord wants to kill me or he wants to send me to hell. But I know the discipline of the Lord is incredibly painful. And if I can avoid that, I'll just be quick, very quick to repent when it pops up in me. I've got a limp, and it's a good limp. It's a good kind of brokenness. John Wimber is very famous for saying, don't follow a leader without a limp. And what he's trying to say is the same thing, that when you genuinely encounter the real God, you don't walk with a swagger. You walk with a limp. Then there's the, the third kind of fear of the Lord, which is not the norm, it's the exception to the norm. But it is something the Bible warns us of. And it's the, de- it's the fear of, through ongoing unrepentant sin in my life, I will actually be cut off from Christ. And let me say that again. Through ongoing unrepentant sin. Not through sinning. Everybody sins every day, multiple times. That won't result in you being cut off from Christ. But ongoing, unrepentant sin can result in God's judgment and you being cut off from Christ. But don't take my word for it. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 26. If we deliberately keep on sinning, After we have received the knowledge of the truth, no sacrifice for sins is left. Go on. I only gave you that one. That's my my fault. Sorry. It's actually from, it's actually till 31. Sorry. No longer remains a sacrifice for sin, but a fearful expectation of judgment 
and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries of God. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the Spirit of grace? Verse 31, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Have you got that passage? You're still looking. You stopped looking because you thought I'm reading. It'll be good to find it. It'll be good to find it. So this scripture is talking about those who are saved, who have been filled with the Holy Spirit, and we've been saved, don't forget, from our sins. We've repented of our old life of sin. We've turned away from it. We've come to trust in Christ. We've been forgiven for our sins. But if we go on sinning, the Bible says we're actually trampling the grace of God under our feet. We're using the grace of God as an excuse to go on sinning. And that, the Bible says, is one of the most terrible things that a Christian can do because you're actually trampling the sacrifice of Christ as if it were a worthless thing. And so, when we say, like we read earlier, can you see now how wrong that quote was? The Bible speaks about God being a a consuming fire. When you think of fire, what kind of fear is it? It's just the normal definition of fear. I'm I'm afraid afraid of putting my hand in the fire. There is a healthy kind of fear with God that if I continue in my sins and I'm not repentant of it, if I don't turn away from my sins, there should be a natural healthy kind of fear that kicks in and it says, wait, I'm a child of God now. I'm trampling the, the sacrifice of Christ under my feet. And there is the kind of fear that unbelievers experience that I will begin to experience. And that is a healthy thing. That is a good thing because it can bring you back to repentance. It's when you lose that kind of fear, that's when you're in the most danger because you've actually then become a leprous Christian that doesn't actually fear dangers to your body that could kill you. That is not a good thing. Pain in that sense is a good thing. Does that make sense? But I'm going to reiterate and say that it's willful, ongoing, unrepentant sin. Christians don't have to go to sleep every night wondering if they're saved or if they're unsaved. You don't, there's an assurance that we have as Christians because of the Holy Spirit living on the inside that I'm a child of God, that I've been bought as a, at a price, and that I experience the righteousness of Christ. God overlooks my sins. He forgives my sins. He's quick, he's slow to anger, and abounding in love. But there is a healthy kind of fear. And I believe that in our generation, Satan has actually deceived many people into thinking that that kind of fear is not actually something that Christians should have. And that can kill you. That can kill you. And so in 1 John chapter 4, verse 17, now I'm, I'm going on to now explain the difference between irrational, the, the phobia kind of fear, and a healthy kind of fear. Because some people suffer from an unhealthy kind of fear. And what that looks like is they always feel condemned. They always feel like they don't measure up to the righteousness of God. They always feel unworthy. They always feel like they cannot come into the presence of God because they're not good enough. That is an irrational fear. And that's from Satan. 
And so then to you, if that is you, the Bible would say in John, 1 John chapter 4, verse 17 and 18, In this way love is made complete among us, so that we will have confidence on the day of judgment, because in this world we are like Him. There is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear, because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. So just keep that up there. As Christians, I'm not afraid that Jesus will return tomorrow. I'm not afraid of standing before Christ on Judgment Day. Why? Because I'm in Christ, and I have the righteousness of Christ, and I've been forgiven. And thank Jesus, I'm not going to be judged according to my righteousness, but according to the righteousness of Christ. And there's a love that I have and I experience from God that I live in that's my daily reality. I have an assurance that Christ will keep me till the end. I don't worry about losing my salvation every day. I don't walk around with a sense of condemnation and fear that when I stand before Christ, will I be good enough? Because I won't. That's how I started. And so that is the kind of perfect love that drives out fear, and it has to do with judgment. That's why another verse that you very famous, there is now no longer any condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The condemnation that it's talking about is, the, is this condemnation. On judgment day, I will stand before Christ. And I come before Christ now in confidence. The context of this is those that are walking with Christ, that are in relationship with Christ. As John 15 says, those who are in Christ through faith and obedience to His voice. It actually says, um, in this world, we are like Him. What does that mean? means we walk as Christ walks. We live as Christ lives. We walk in obedience to the Father. And when we sin, the Bible says He is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins. Does that make sense? So there's forgiveness in Christ. The thing that puts you in danger is unrepentant, ongoing, deliberate sin, which is abusing the grace of Christ. Does that make sense? And so there's a healthy fear and an unhealthy fear. The way that you can distinguish between the two is that when Satan comes to bring fear and condemnation, it's general, it's generalized, it's like you you are just a bad person. Not you've done something bad, you're just a bad person, just generally. And it separates us from going back to Christ. Don't even bother going back to God because you're such a worthless uh, person. You're not good enough. Don't even, it actually chases you away from God. The conviction of the Holy Spirit is specific and it's redemptive. So the Holy Spirit will say, This particular thing in your life is dangerous. It's a conviction and it brings about true godly repentance and brings about restoration and it brings me back to God. Do you understand the difference? And so the Holy Spirit's conviction is specific and it's redemptive. But if you're feeling just a general sense of, I'm just a sinner, I'm just not good enough, that's a lie that you need to recognize of Satan that is actually trying to to pull you away from from God. And so I'm closing now. A healthy relationship with God is one that has no fear of hell or judgment because I am in Christ. I believe in the gospel that Jesus took my punishment My life is hidden in Christ. But when there is sin in my life, and the Holy Spirit makes me aware of it, I repent quickly, very quickly. 
I have a fear of unrepentant. If there's a pattern of sin in my life, I, I, I fear. I tremble. I think, Lord, please, if my conscience in any way has grown seared to the voice of your Holy Spirit, Lord, forgive me. Empower me. By your grace, change me. Because that's the fruit of, of godly conviction. I tremble when God speaks. The Bible says though, that those who believe tremble at the word of God. What does that mean? It means it's God speaking. Right? It's not just my daddy God, my friend, my buddy, and he makes good suggestions, and sometimes I follow them, and sometimes I'm cleverer than he is. No, it's God. When he speaks, it's wisdom. It's truth. It's going to save my life. I respond quickly. And I say, yes, Lord, I trust you. I will follow you. I will obey you. And I go on living in life and freedom. And what's so liberating about the fear of the Lord, it's contrasted with other fears. When you have a sincere, godly fear of God, you don't fear anything else. It's the only fear I have. And so one of the definitions of living in the fear of the Lord, if you heard that saying, I live for an audience of one. What does that mean? I live to please my heavenly Father. What he loves, I love. If he's displeased and he's speaking words of warning, I heed his voice. I change. I repent. But here's the thing. It liberates me from what everyone else thinks. Because if God says I'm okay, I'm okay, regardless if the whole world thinks I'm a loser or stupid. And so it liberates me from the fear of man. It liberates me from the fear of the consequences of this life for righteousness. The Bible says I don't have to fear about where my provision's coming from. I don't have to fear about losing my job. I don't have to fear of persecution. I don't have to fear about where I'm going to sleep. I don't have to fear about what other people think. I only think, care, and fear what God says. And if He says I'm good, I'm good. And it's liberating. It's absolutely liberating. So let's, let's, pray. let's pray. 